Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. You know, and it's hard to do those well. There's not very many books that, like, you really care a ton about, like, the supporting, like, cast of characters. Mm. I would say kind of like Harry Potter handles it really well like you really by the end of the harry potter series like care about like every gryffindor you know you can like tell them yeah your, their name and where they're from you know like yeah you're like dennis dennis creevy no like yeah yeah exactly exactly and so so i feel like there are not very many series that like handles all of those levels of characters well that's something that i even think sanderson struggles with as well is like handling the supporting cast of characters what's up black wardens Stephen and Josh here to bring you another Phantology episode. This time we're covering Crimson Campaign, the second book in Brian McClellan's Powder Mage trilogy. So Josh, what's up? How'd you like this one? Yeah, just big overview. I thought it was a good sequel. I don't know if it completely changed the way I thought of the series or of the trilogy so far, but I didn't notice like a decrease in quality. Second books are always hard to get really good. I don't feel like this one, you know, is going to be a standout, but I don't feel like it failed as a second book either. So overall, I'm positive on it. Yeah, we've talked about that quite a bit where it seems like, especially in this trilogy structure for fantasy, you have a really strong first book that gets you into the world, kind of has a self-contained plot almost. And I think Promise of Blood had that. And then the trilogy continues. And I think sometimes these second books are like the author knows what he wants to get in the finale of the trilogy. The second book has to get you to the point where that is possible. And I think sometimes you can get a little bogged down with just getting the plot to that point. Did you think that was the case here at all? Yeah, I noticed that with some characters, especially like Adamat, it had him basically just doing what he was doing in the first book and doing it again in the second book. There were some characters that changed and that were put in new settings that I really liked. For example, Tamas was thrown out of his, you know, out of Adipus and was out, you know, leading a campaign, which was really cool. And Daniel again, was just kind of living the soldiering life, which you knew he did in the first book, but you didn't really get to see him do. So overall, I thought that all of the characters were doing things that made sense for their characters, but nothing that uh, really made me rethink how I think about this series. Yeah, so we primarily follow Tamis, his son, Daniel, and Adamant. And we'll talk about these guys more when we get into spoilers. This trilogy is fairly unique in that it's a flintlock fantasy. So we have magic happening with guns, and there's some unique magic systems. There's a nice world here. So I think there's a lot of positives um, about this trilogy, especially when you consider that it's McClellan's first trilogy, his second published book. For sure. And that's easy to forget sometimes. I feel like when I'm going through this because the quality is so good, there aren't any really glaring issues to me in terms of the editing of the book, in terms of how it's put together and the language used and the just editing and stylistic choices. There's nothing that seems like off base about that. And that's really impressive for a second book and, you know, for a new author. Yeah, the writing is really snappy and, and it's easy to get right into it. The characters are are fairly well fleshed out. And I think we talked about this in the first one, but McClellan was one of Sanderson, Brandon Sanderson's students. And 
you can see his influence a lot, especially with these unique magic systems that McClellan has here. And that's one thing that I didn't love about this book is it felt like there were supposed to be some big surprise changes to the magic system. Like that didn't really land that well for me. It was like, oh, okay, they can do this now. Cool. And we can talk a little bit more about that through spoilers, but just in general, there seemed to be some things that were meant to be revelatory moments for the magic system in a vein that Sanderson does, but they didn't really hit home for me in this. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear your thoughts there for sure. When we get into spoilers, Sanderson definitely does that. It seems like in every book he establishes every series, he established the magic system. You think, you know what is possible and then you add things to it and add twists and, and he does it in really fun ways. So uh, maybe this is like the worst of the best thing for you in our, in our segment at the end. Yeah, maybe. And I don't, I don't want to just dunk on McClellan and just compare him to Sanderson because I think that there's some things that he does, you know, better than Sanderson. And I don't think it's just fair just to compare him, but there, there are just some things like that, that tried to be, I feel like Sanderson-esque, but didn't have the same type of punch that you would typically get in a Sanderson book. Yeah. He is a very unique style here. I think one comparison that I'm going to draw upon a few times in this review is I just finished Dead House Gates, the second book of the Malzahn. Okay. Book of the Fallen. And it has a very similar plot line where there is a long extended campaign that the characters are heavily outnumbered during, and you have some awesome leadership and battles happening there. And I think this is like a mini version of that almost. If you read both the books, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I finished uh, Dead House Gates a few weeks ago. I get where you're coming from with that. With that, I just think that this is so much more character centric than a book like Dead House Gates is. I get where the comparison, where the plot point comparisons come from, but I think that Dead House Gates does a better job in setting up it within the world and context of like the huge wider world the importance of these battles that are happening. Whereas, and this is more about the characters and how are the characters responding to this battle that you understand what's going on and why it's going on, but the important thing is the characters in here. Definitely. Yes. Steven Erickson, the Malazan author, does not focus on characters. It is a plot and world book. It's not a character book at all. So very different in that vein. So so I think we're ready to get into spoilers. Before we do so, let me just say that if you like what Phantology is doing, check us out at Phantology Books online at our website, www.phantologybooks.com. Hop on our Discord and tell us what you like, what you don't like. Check out our merch merch shop. You can get uh, whatever you want branded with Phantology artwork from Mark Wells, our artist. And you can also support us on Patreon. We have a few tiers and some bonuses there. We have a live stream coming up. By the time this episode is, rele- is released, that probably will have happened. But uh, Phantology does a lot of fun things, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Awesome. And, and then also, let's talk a content warning here. This is going to be same as Promise of Blood. So if you read the first book, same thing uh, to expect. There is some language, nothing too, uh, nothing too harsh. There is quite a lot of violence and almost no sexual content. I guess there is like one scene where um, you can tell things have been happening, but there's really nothing on camera as far as that goes. Yeah, pretty tame. PG-13 for sure sexual content. The language, I think, was a little bit grittier in this one. But I, I I don't know that for sure. It just seemed to stand out a little bit more in this, a little bit stronger language. The violence is really what's going to get the content rating pushed up for this. And it's not like grimdark, you know, in a way that first law is, but it's it's definitely prevalent. 
Yeah, the whole book is about a war, and, uh, and and there's a lot of fighting. There's one scene I think where like jawbones are being torn out, oh, yeah. and there there's a, a minor torture scene that happens. So so there's for sure some some violence. So going into the book, here we go, Crimson Campaign. So it starts off with Adamant. Adamant is our investigator character. He's probably on the older side of middle age, and if you remember from the first book, his family has been taken from him by this mysterious guy named Lord Vitas, who has blackmailed him to do some work for him. This is still kind of nebulous as to what this motivation is. Um, there, there's obviously something going on in the shadows here that Vitas and his and his boss, that we're not exactly sure who it is, are, are uh, a part of. So Adamant ambushes this house where his children are being held hostage as the action begins, and they succeed kind of, but they don't get his wife, Faye, or his oldest son, Joseph. And they learn that the proprietor, who is another kind of underworld type character, is involved here. So this investigation is going to continue on. This is going to be the majority of Adamant's plot line. We also revisit Tamis, who is preparing to fight a large Kez army at the end of the first book. This war was starting, and he comes up with a plan to surprise them using the catacombs that are conveniently in this area on the on the border. They're kind of like right in this pass that leads into Adro. Maybe consult the map if you need help here. And Mahali, who is his resident god helper guy, he's the god Adam, is going to help them, but he is worried about Kresimir, who is the other god that Taniel shot at the end of the first book, Promise of Blood. And to catch you up on Taniel, he is drugged up in a Maladen, which is the drug of choice in this world, and he's running out of money, selling his possessions. But Rickard Tumblr, who is the leader of like the People's Movement, wants Taniel to run for second minister with him, like his, his VP in this government that's changing. So as I vomit out all of that to start the action, Josh, what stood out to you? Like, where did you enjoy getting back into the world? So a little bit of unique experience that happened for me on this was somehow, I do not know how this happened. I do these through like overdrive. I do the audiobooks through it. And somehow I had listened to the first chapter of book two, like before starting the series. Like, I think that I, it somehow started at the end. And I think that the first chapter was included as a teaser. And so like that was that first chapter was my first introduction into, into really trilogy. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. I thought it was just the prologue. Cause if you go back and listen to that chapter, it sounds kind of like it could be a prologue, you know? Huh? And then it said like, this is the ending it ended. So I think I must have somehow clicked on it. And so I got this view from the beginning of Adamat kind of, at his most intense, you know, with shoving this guy's head and like human feces. And that's okay. kind of always been my perception of him. And so throughout the first book, I was like excited to see him get to that point. And so it felt earned to me starting with Adamant in this position. Okay. And you actually liked this. So perhaps this should have been the, uh, the, the real publishing order. Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I like that it didn't really have any spoilers in it <laughs> and that it just kind of happened to work out like that, that I kind of could see Adamant getting to this darker stage. And I thought it was a really compelling, like, okay, we're going to see Adamant like go to some more extreme lengths to get his wife back. And just because he's gotten his family back 
doesn't mean that he's going to stop there. And I think we do see throughout this book, like Adamant crossing some lines that he may have not crossed in the first book. Yeah, Adamant's a really likable character. I think throughout this book, he's always kind of encouraged by other people like, dude, Adamant, this is maybe a little too hard. Like, let your son go. You're not going to find him and, and there's no stopping him. Yeah. And jumping ahead, this was something that I his whole reaction to losing his son to the slave traders wasn't super believable within his character to me. The fact that he went to like these extreme lengths of, to find his wife, like where he was willing to work with basically whoever he needed to work with to get his wife back. It seems like he would do that for his son. And just because his wife says no, like that doesn't seem like that would stop him, you know, and that that's jumping towards the ending of the book. But that's really what bugged me about Adamant throughout this book is that he went to there was so much of him going to whatever extreme he needed to to get his wife back. And then it seemed like he was just going to drop his son just for plot convenience to have something happen in the third book. Yeah, it's like this dude can raise ridiculous amounts of Krana in order to uh, he really has no limits. Like you say, he's he's able to work with anyone in order to get his family back. So then he kind of gives up. Does he give up or is it just that the plot kind of advances towards the end without his he gets his wife back and then he goes and he takes out a loan to hire some people to go get his son back from the slave traders and something happens and his wife is like no you're i need you to be with us you know i need you to take care of us we're safe we're here um you need to not pursue this and then he's like uh okay and i i felt like that conversation just happened so that and this is jumping way to the epilogue of the book so that Bo could come in and be like i need you to do this but i'll go get your son back for you you know, I sure. felt like okay. it just happened to set that up. That's a fair criticism. So maybe we need a little more uh, hard-hitting emotional scenes for for this this type of plot advancement. Yeah, yeah. It didn't land too well for me. That might actually be my worst of the best for the book was that whole how that happened. So that's Adamant. I think we kind of covered the majority of his plot well, there. We'll, we'll we'll hit some some other details. Yeah. But what do you think of uh, Tamis and Taniel as we okay. get started? So, so Tamis and Taniel. So Tamis, I love that he was thrown, he was put back in his old warmongering ways, you know, that he was out there leading a campaign. I didn't love Tamis in the first book. If you remember, I thought that he was my least mm-hmm. favorite character starting out. And then he became the most compelling character by the end of the book for me. Because you didn't feel like you understood his motivations. Enough, yeah, right. Exactly. Like I felt like he was almost meant to be the antagonist in the book with just starting out throwing the king and all the people Mm. and, you know, killing them all. And I felt like I was getting his backstory, only it's not his backstory, it's what he's doing now. But I felt like I now understand him much more of a character. And if I were to do a reread of book one, I would understand why he did the things they did in book one even more. There's a lot of his backstory in this book. As well, do you see any Dalinar Colin in him? I mean, let's avoid any spoilers for future Stormlight books, but I feel like the characters are, are kind of aligned. Yeah, I was going to make that comparison too. I didn't want to get too much into spoilers, but here you have this old soldier that has a reputation of being like a warmongering type soldier now trying to do politics, and you're getting mm-hmm. him back back into the field now, leading a hopeless you know, on its face campaign too, out of revenge too, basically like that's, that was something that was really interesting in this book too, is that this was pretty much just revenge for 
for Tamis. You know, it had he had his reasons or whatever, but this was just to get back at the Kez, right? Yeah, the freaking Kez, man. They're, those guys are losers. <laughs> and and here's another kind of criticism that that I have in this book is you don't so far have any real appreciation for why the Kez are doing what they're doing. Yeah, they just seem like an army of orcs. I mean, they're people, but they they just seem like cannon fodder and we don't care at all if we kill them. You get one kind of cool character that was like, I'm forgetting his name, but he was going to let Tamis surrender and like give him good terms on his surrender and stuff. And then You're talking about uh, Beyond, the yeah, yeah, yeah. king's son. Yeah. Yeah. And then he becomes more of a character throughout the book. But so you do get some characters from the Kez that are actually handled pretty well, but you don't get really the greater Kez motivation, I feel like. Which I feel like is, I mean, to make another comparison to Deadhouse Gates, I feel like is the same thing with, I guess we don't want to talk spoilers for that book, but but the antagonistic army is very much the same where you have no sympathy for them at all. And yeah. it would be nicer to get the other side as well. And so I'm hoping that's on my wish list for book three is a little bit more background on the Kez, why they're doing what they're doing. Is it just so that they can, you know, subjugate this neighboring kingdom of theirs just so that they can have access to their resources and what, you know, I hope we get a little bit more. If we don't, it's not like a deal breaker. It's not going to make me hate the series or anything, but it's on my wish list. That's a fair criticism. So what do you think of Daniel as he tries to get out of his drug stupor here? Or doesn't, maybe doesn't even really try like other people try. This was the, my least favorite storyline to start with. (laughs) I felt like I threw away all of his character development throughout the first book you did see him becoming a little bit more addicted throughout the book, but you felt him getting his purpose throughout the first book. You know, you felt him saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to actually take on my responsibility. I'm going to step out behind out of my dad's shadow and I'm going to become my own person. And then just because he's like injured now, he's just going to, I mean, it's realistic, right? Like I'm not saying it's not realistic. I'm not saying that it wasn't done well, but I felt like it wasn't a satisfying a progression for his character from book one. So he just hit the reset button and, and you feel like maybe he slipped into it too easily. Like after what happened in the first book, he should have had more internal motivation to continue to kind of be that person who had progressed. And he was just very easily saying, eh, whatever, I'm back to being a bum. It's what I wanted, you know? And I, I do like that McClellan is like addressing addiction and, I think that's handled well in this book, at least fairly well. That's the thing as I feel like he doesn't like really push into the effects of addiction on people. Like if you read something like Stephen King, like, and Stephen King has struggled with, you know, addictions throughout his life. So maybe he can, he's able to do it a little bit better, but whenever you get a character that's like addicted to like an alcoholic or drugs in like a Stephen King book, you really feel like the pain that that's causing the character and like the effects on their relationships. I feel like, McClellan's like saying, okay, this character is addicted and it's having effects on him and it's changing his personality, but he doesn't really push too deep into that. It's kind of just surface level. And so I feel like if he was going to go down this road of let's deal with addiction, he could have gone or should have gone further. Which is interesting because not only are the characters addicted to Mala, Taniel especially, but all of the powder mages are addicted to black powder and spend the majority of their time on screen on the in these powder trances and they need this substance to continue functioning really 
and I don't know if there's like a relationship. To me, it seems like he's kind of like handling his black powder addiction with his with like his mala addiction. You know, it, it seems kind of like an upper versus downer. Like the black powder is like a huge upper, like he's on speed or something, and then the mala is like marijuana or something where it's just going to depress like depress him and get him into like a more calm state and so like again that's realistic for like drug users right is to like kind of try and balance these two things out for people that are addicted to these kind of drugs but i i don't feel like it really went far enough to make me love it as a storyline yeah thanks for the primer on uh on drug use there (laughs) i i could be off base i don't have much like experience with drugs or anything but this is my general understanding of it right yeah so so the plot continues and we get more stuff from Adam and he's tracking down Vitas. There's a misunderstanding with the proprietor and we just kind of have some politics that are starting to happen as he searches for his family. So nothing too revelatory here. The, the big thing that happens right away is that Tamas's ploy to get behind enemy lines and fight the Kez does not work. It's a complete disaster. The catacombs are collapsed and his army is trapped on the other side of the Kez as they march forward into Adrian territory. And so Tamas, his only choice, his only option is to march his army north around all of the mountains through Kez territory over some major rivers and make it into Delev, which is on the northern side and into another city that will then let him get back into Adapest. So I think it's important to understand the geography here, and there's some nice maps uh, actually made by Isaac Stewart, who is Brandon Sanderson's primary cartographer. So that is uh, that's the main plot line that I was here for in the book. What do you think, Josh? So I, I enjoyed his storyline, but that wasn't what I was there for, and so I think I was different than you on that. I was there. I was more intrigued by Daniel and by Adamat than I was by by Tamas. But I did enjoy it. You know, like, I mean, that's the that's where the title comes from, right? Is the Crimson Campaign, his campaign right. to get his men back. And so I feel like I should have been more open to that storyline and like dug more into that storyline. But for whatever reason, I didn't care too, too much about it. Did you just assume that it would be successful? So you're like, OK, these are just details and you kind of already knew the end. I mean, I didn't know the end, but I didn't feel like this. I feel like I knew Tamas would make it out of it. I felt like he would. And I didn't really care about his army. You know, like there weren't enough supporting characters within the army to like make me care if there was like heavy losses. Olam, Vlora, not enough for you. Vlora, I I think you guys have kind of spoiled that for me that she's like in the second trilogy as a uh, bigger I guess character. that would have helped you know that she survived. So yeah. like, yeah. Well, even regardless, like, up to this point, we haven't even had that much character development with Flora. Flora, she's just kind of been somebody to cause problems. So, like, even if she would have died, I wouldn't have really cared because she hasn't had that much character development up to this point. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair criticism that maybe the minor characters are not as fleshed out. Like, looking back, I don't remember. Like, I remember their names, but I couldn't really tell you much about them other than this guy's a powder major, this guy isn't. He's a privileged. Yeah. So the campaign like i was interested in it but i wasn't interested enough to like go look up the details of like okay this is what i think is going to happen next with the campaign this is the twist or turn i think is going to happen 
I wasn't like dissecting it like that on my read through, which I do with some other storylines. You know, I'm like making predictions. I'm enthralled by it. I want to know what happens next. I, I wasn't doing that for the storyline. And I guess I have to make another comparison to Dead House Gates. Plug for our upcoming Dead House Gates review if you like Malazan. But I was way into the campaign there. The Chain of Dogs. I was so into that. So I guess well, maybe a little different. Well, because they're more sympathetic. It's a more sympathetic situation, I think. Where you have people like fleeing for their literal lives against yeah. the armies of the apocalypse. Right. Like it's much more of a sympathetic character situation, whereas this is just more of a, okay, our invasion isn't working the way we hoped it would. Dot, dot, yeah, dot. That, <laughs> right? That's like, fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. Anyway, and this is this is not to say I didn't enjoy the storyline in the book. It's just it wasn't my favorite. And I don't think it was handled as good as it could have been because of the issues we've talked about. So Taniel is also going to join up with the army after he gets attacked by some wardens. And he realizes that the wardens were actually once powder mages. I think these are what we call black wardens now. And we're not exactly sure what's going on here. But him and Capole join up. They, they head down south to fight. He also learns that Tamas has supposedly died, although that's going to be debunked pretty quickly and become a source of conflict. When he gets down there, he immediately clashes with leadership there, including Major Doravir and General Ket, and he gets into these altercations and ultimately gets court-martialed and sentenced to die. So Taniel has zero ability to behave himself. <laughs> okay, so here's uh, where I was talking about with the magic system. Like these Black Wardens, I felt like we're supposed to be this reveal of like, oh, a privilege and a and a powder mage coming mm. together like the ultimate yeah. weapon kind of like oh, i don't want to do spoilers for misborn but y you know what i'm getting to right like yeah yeah misborn fans mm. you'll know what i mean it just i was like okay why didn't this happen before like is there something that some scientists found out i know that kresimir was involved in the creation of the wardens and kresimir is like the patron god of the kez essentially so he's helping them out so I don't know if like behind the scenes, maybe he was helping them do this, but that doesn't really make sense because he is pretty much insane. So I couldn't really see him contributing much to the advancement of science either. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, I guess is the answer. Okay. See, this is another thing where I want it. I wanted it to land more than it did. Like I, I didn't care. It's like, okay, cool. They, they have this super soldier, like they leveled up from book one, you know? And Taniel and, and Capole are still able to defeat them yeah, if they try hard enough. It's still not even like a like that much of a challenge for them. They're still just on the front line, just mm. you know, blowing people away. So I'm like, why did they even do this if isn't going to be you know much of an issue for them? I mean, they are super effective against the rest of the army, which is in a constant state of retreat. I think every other powder mage has been killed, so it's bad for Adro. But our characters. They're still able to do what they want to. But, but we're told it's bad for Adro. But do we feel like it's bad for Adro reading it? I, I, we feel like it's bad because they're retreating. And But then again, Daniel is always like, oh, there's a traitor. Like, why are we even retreating? You know? Yeah. And maybe that's just his cockiness because, oh, I'm here. Now, now we're going to win. You know, I get that. that That's his character. And th so that's where his mind went. But this was another thing where I felt like it was just kind of trying to do what book one did was oh, there's a traitor, let's figure out who it is. Which I feel like book one did it better than this. And this one, I again, I was never super invested on who the traitor was. 
Yeah, I can see that definitely happened in book one. And then here in book two, maybe we don't necessarily care as much about some of these minor characters, which you've said you had trouble with. And then when we finally found out who the traitor is, we're like, okay, it was one of the dudes, but... It was one of the five people it could have been. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I feel like I'm being too negative. I want to stop being negative and pull out... When I talk about these plot points, then it, it kind of is easy to pick apart them. But going through this book and being with these characters, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Daniel's like point of view. I enjoyed his thoughts. I enjoyed his like protective instincts for a couple, like while understanding that she could like tear anybody apart that didn't prevent him from like still wanting to protect her and keep her safe. I really enjoyed so much about these characters and I enjoyed what they were doing. I thought that what they were doing was fine, but I feel like the character work stands out to me in this book. Yeah. Capole. She's awesome, right? I mean, I would say Kapol and Mahali are my two favorites. One of them very over the top and funny. One of them can't speak at all. So so that's how different they are. But each one is a standout and awesome. And these are more minor characters. So we were a little critical of minor characters, but here are two minor characters who are awesome. I guess there's like main characters and then there's minor characters and then there's like supporting characters. And like, yeah. so the main characters, my minor characters are handled fine, handled well, I should say, like really well. Um, whereas like the supporting characters, like the cast of characters are are not done super well, you know, and it's hard to do those well. There's not very many books that like you really care a ton about like the supporting like cast of characters. Mm. I would say kind of like Harry Potter handles it really well. Like you really, by the end of the Harry Potter series, like care about like every Gryffindor, you know, you can like tell them. Yeah. Your, their name and where they're from you know like yeah you're like dennis dennis creevy no like yeah yeah exactly exactly and so so i feel like there are not very many series that like handles all of those levels of characters well that's something that i even think sanderson struggles with as well is like handling the supporting cast of characters and understandably right that that's hard to do when you're just putting words on a page and you've got this huge cast of main characters that you spend all of your time and you're really, you know, bleeding your life force into to make them good. And then you think, Oh, I've got these ancillary guys who've also got to be good. That's got to be hard. And who are just typically plot conveniences like, Oh, we need to have a conversation with this guy to make this happen. You know, Tamas needs yeah. to talk to one of his generals so that we know what they're going to do next in the campaign. So yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed when Kalpul and Mahal, I, I struggled to say his name. I say Mahali. Mahali. When they met, that was like awesome. Like I felt like there was mutual respect for each other, you know, to the point where she he gave her his blood, right? Like that was pretty crazy. God did. Like, yeah. So did you understand why there was mutual respect there? Like that's a little interesting. Well, yeah, I feel like, I mean, I have like some like not super well thought out theories that like she's like actually like one of the god like a goddess or like descended from like a goddess she's like has power in a way that we haven't seen so far right and i'm like waiting for that to be explained and i don't feel like i'm reading it closely or there's not enough clues that like have allowed me to really delve into like create super intricate theories about what that power is but i feel like it's gonna make sense when we get that revelation yeah i think this is one of the stronger points of the series and i'll just say keep on reading and i think it's a nice payoff it Capol is one of my favorite characters yeah. for, for sure. And with, with good reason. Yeah. I'm really invested in her. I'm really excited to see where her character goes and 
she's yeah she's at the top of my my a list as well so she kind of shows us some power making voodoo dolls of kresimir and wardens and that's going to be something that they use that's a nice use of the magic i think later on they like fire something at the warden voodoo dolls and that basically simulates cannon fire and helps them get away towards the end so i would say that's a nice advancement yep. of the magic a nice twist on on the magic system that does pay off well you said Taniel is suspicious of a traitor this is based off some discrepancies he's noticing in like black powder amounts and the early retreats so this continues to cause increasing tension in the army and then Mahali convinces him to surrender to the provosts which are the army officers to be court-martialed he gets into yet another fight it's we'll kind of see what's going to happen here with Taniel and then going forward with Tamis's plotline, this is where after a couple of victories, he meets up with Bian Je Epale. <laughs> that was awful, but that's my. Uh, it sounds French, right? So, so that's my best attempt. And the narrator like kind of speaks in a French accent for this person too. Okay, yeah. So I guess the kids are supposed to be French, which is ironic that the other army is retreating from them. But <laughs> he's the son of the king and. Tamas refuses to surrender to him, even though he's outnumbered. They have a nice little ambush where he sets up some stuff on the ground. The cavalry charges and doesn't see the ambush and fails. And so Tamas wins the fight. This is a little reminiscent of something that happens in The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie. I think one of our our Discord friends made that comparison, and and I really like that. And then going on to Adamant's uh, storyline... He's now at the point where I call this the part of the storyline, the part where he's raising a bunch of money. So first of all, he's got to raise a bunch of money. The Krana is the name of the money in this world. He First, he's got to spring Bo, Bo Badir, the privileged from the first book, and in order to get him to help him. And so he gets this, I think he has to get like 75K to do this. So he does this. And then once he does this, then he has to raise 300K to get the location of his son, Joseph, who's been sold into slavery. So I I don't know, kind of a fun little storyline here. And then I skipped over the whole part with uh, Vetus where they finally capture him. Yeah. So but, let's uh, go what did you think of these things, Josh? So the money part I didn't really care about. Let's go back to the... <laughs> the, so, the... Uh, okay, so so I guess I'm more into economics than you are in, in I mean, this case. But... As an econ major, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I hey. don't know. That, that wasn't too enthralling for me. But I did love the combo of Adamant and Bo. I thought that that was one of the pairings that I wouldn't expect to like, but I really did. I thought that they had good chemistry as characters together, and I thought that they really worked. I also thought that Vutus's demise was like so well earned, you know, where he was just so cocky, and Bo just came in and wrecked, right? Like, yeah, reaction to that scene that that was a fun scene. I think there was a, a large explosion, and then there was some fairly significant torture that happened. Vetus's arms got yeah. ripped off. Yep. Pretty yeah. graphic. And it was a close call. Like Adamant had a plan and it didn't really go through, but then Bo came in and he was about to kill Adamant's wife. And then Bo came in and saved her. That was awesome. I liked how it was building the kind of relationship between Adamant's wife and Faye. Faye. Yeah. Faye is Adamant's wife. And, Nyla? Yeah, Nyla. Nyla. Yeah. I like that relationship. 
I like so how... question. Do you do you like Nyla as a character? Because yeah. through the majority of the book, I was kind of like, why? But towards the end, you realize that she has a purpose. But you were okay with her throughout. Well, yeah, I thought that this was Nyla has always been the character, like the the character that you as an audience member can like relate to. Whereas like you don't really know what's going on in the wider world. Like she's kind of introducing you to things as like a normal person. And that's, yeah, seems like that, it's that's, a, that's a good way to story tell. Yeah. Yeah. She just cared about, first of all, getting the heir to the throne. I'm forgetting his name. Jacob. Yeah. Or y- Jacob. I think they say in the yeah, audio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. They get Jacob. Like she's just kind of there to protect him. And then she like makes that her mission. And it's a small contained storyline that they do a good job developing her character. Her motivations aren't complicated. And so I, I've always liked her viewpoints. So once she became privileged or once you realized she became privileged and that was a really big payoff for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know, actually, because there wasn't anything leading up to it that I saw. It wasn't foreshadowed at the time. Uh, you would have liked more kind of like how at the beginning of Mistborn, when you realize that Ben has been using her powers a little bit, that's, I mean, that's in the first chapter, yeah, so yeah, yeah. not really a spoiler, but like she's been influencing people emotionally something like that where like she maybe even if it was something as small as like she got slapped and like she should she was like man that felt like it should have knocked out a tooth or something yeah i don't know just something where it led you could have speculated that she was powered in some way and maybe i missed it like i'm not reading these books like super closely so i could have missed stuff but it wasn't foreshadowed enough for me to be like that was a satisfying payoff Hey, can I make one more Deadhouse Gates comparison? <laughs> I can't get over Deadhouse Gates. But when when you were talking about Nyla as the boots on the ground type of viewpoint, I thought that was very similar to Diker as the Imperial historian, along with the Chain of Dogs, where you saw what was happening through a regular guy's eyeballs. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I think it helps you uh, be drawn in as the audience. Yeah, good comparison. And so I do like that Nyla is going to get some more, you know, obviously she's going to become a lot more important to the plot. And I'm glad that it's not like she's just going to become a love interest for Bo. Like, I'm glad that there's going to be more, more to that relationship. Hopefully, hopefully she just doesn't become a minx for him to chase after, you know, that's, that's kind of annoying. So I'm hoping that it's a similar thing where she develops her power in a way that's going to be really essential to the plot and that she gets more into the you know the meat of things so i guess we'll see what you think of that relationship and development going forward into the third book the autumn republic but for now here we are still with tamas who is fighting towards alvation which is the the delive city up north and he learns that there is like a group of kez that's disguised as adrin soldiers and they are attacking the city and this group includes his nemesis, Nick Slas, from the first book. So now it's even more personal for Tamas, and this is coming to a head. At the same time, Taniel eventually gets out of his situation being court-martialed, and him and Capole go and join the mercenaries, and Mahali convinces them that they need to go to Kresimir and try to heal him from the madness and put a stop to all of this stuff. And then finally we make it to Alvation and realize that Nyxloss is planning to blow everything up, 
Tamis and Vlora are sneaking around. The Dell of Army is also coming in onto the scene because they've learned of this invasion that's happening. They're like a day away. So everything's coming to a head here between Daniel's plotline and between Tamis's plotline a bit. And then Adamant as well has some things going on. I mean, he's killed Vetus, but he is involved in this thing where the Brudonia people and another group um, led by Lord Claremont are coming in through this new canal, which is kind of, if you look at the map, is kind of in the same area around Alvation. And this is more of a mystery, like what's going on here? Do we need to be worried about this? Do we not? Turns out we do. But Josh, on all three of these levels, like what do you think of the climax of the book here? And, and what, maybe which one of these intrigued you the most? The most intriguing to me was, I think it was Taniel. Because of Kresimir? Because of Kresimir, yeah. He's the most relatable character to me in, in the book. I just like his viewpoint the most. So I was I was more interested. He seemed also to be in the shakiest of positions at this point. He was facing down a literal god. You know, he had been taking capture behind enemy lines. He was pretty pretty much screwed at this point, you know? Yeah. Tamus to me, it was more of I didn't really see the reality of how an entire group of soldiers like could disguise themselves as another occupying force. And it's like, just go listen to their accent. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like somebody should have been able to put that together, mm, you know? Okay. And I didn't really care too much about his, like the fact that he had like dated this woman earlier. Oh yeah. In, in Alvation. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are all these like things that may have been payoffs were meant to have been payoffs that didn't really pay off too much for me. I think like it was like, okay, Tamas is now we're getting a little bit more of his backstory through this character that's being introduced. Again, it kind of seems like th- these are the ancillary characters that were a little weaker. Real quick, we kind of, we didn't talk about the scene. One of my favorite scenes in the entire book was Vlora and uh, Tamis, their relationship in general, but also like she was sleeping with his, with implied, with, yeah, implied that she was sleeping with Olam and the, or yeah. that they were at least having a relationship built out. And I, th- I think that this was handled so well because it showed you that Tamis felt like he should be able to be controlling these people, right? His friend that he was really close to and this person that he sees as kind of like a daughter, he felt like he should have more say in these people's lives, right? Mm. That if he tells them, at least the fact, if he like commands them as their commanding officer, that they should at least obey him. And they're like, no, we're going to do what makes us happy, right? And he, it takes a while for him to come around to the fact that he's, he can't be the end all be all. And I feel like that was a good really that was a good realization, and that was some good character development that we got in this book for him. Yeah, and then there's another nice moment a little bit later when Tamis kind of takes off in a, a conflict and ends up stranded. A little bit of a uh, of a hot blooded move here, maybe not the best thing to do, but Vlora chases after him. And they have to just camp out and wait for the army to catch up. And they have some bonding time. And I think they have a a nice relationship there. And this is something that you kind of continue to see built out in future books that has some nice payoffs for me. Like she is his adopted daughter. I mean, father-daughter relationship for the most part, it's it's fairly strong. And I felt like that that was done well in this book. And the fact that she like stood up to him was really cool there was a scene when they were basically like yelling at each other, like surrounded by 
the entire camp of people looking on. And he was like, felt like his, you know, authority was being challenged, felt like he was being betrayed by this person he had raised, you know, so there are a lot of mixed emotions going on. And I felt like that was perfectly encapsulating of why, what stands out to me about the series is the character work, the dialogue and these uh, moments that feel really personal and that really land with me. So to wrap up the uh, the conclusion of all these climactic moments, so Daniel, like you said, has been taken captive by Kresimir. He tries to escape, but Kresimir literally picks up a river that Daniel is in and grabs him. Then there's some fighting that happens. Capul comes in and saves the day for the most part. Kresimir pretty much wants to burn everything. And then Mahali shows up, him and Kresimir talk. And as they do so, Taniel is momentarily blinded as Kresmer opens a portal into the else. The else is like the beyond area where the magic resides is how we understand it. And when Taniel can see again, Mahali is gone. So dun dun dun, this is looking bad because we we love Mahali and Kresmer has now like cemented himself as evil because he's he's killed Adam or Adam is gone. And, and so we're not really sure what's going to happen here. The resolution with Tamis. Well, actually, before uh, we, we do that, let's hit these one at a time. So what do you think of, of Kresimir and Mahali and, and, and Taniel and Capol, Josh? Throughout the first book, there's a foil of Taniel and Ju- Julene. Like, they kind of foiled each other, right? Where they okay. were, he was chasing her, and she was outsmarting him, and she they were kind of testing who was more powerful. So that was a cool... I, I liked how that was done in the first book. In this book, yeah. you get them basically tied up. It seemed like almost crucified next to each other right crucified without nails apparently. without nails but like well because she doesn't even have her hands anymore right well Taniel's tied up another dead another another similarity to dead house gates <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh my gosh so you get the resolution of that foil that was done really well in book one where we see where she is landed as like her uh arrogance has landed her in like this miserable part where she mm-hmm. was trying she basically just wants to die and she's like driven and insane by it and so i really like that scene and then it was fine how like couple came in and rescued him and helped him get down and then they did that cool thing with the voodoo dolls and turned the army against itself and escaped that was all okay exciting for me to read what about kresmir mahali yeah so so i wish i mean i don't know this is so fresh I wish we knew what they were saying, right? Like, mm. I wish that there was a little bit more for me to like dig into with that. I felt like we just kind of saw it happen without like getting enough of what was actually going on during this conversation. You know, we had kind of gotten a little bit that they had been talking to each other, like, and that he had been trying to help Kresmir like become more sane, basically, right? Right. But now we just see that Kresimir might have snapped. We don't know. I mean, we'll see for sure in book three. But this is a nice ending, maybe cliffhanger. Yeah, cliffhanger. With I, I wish I wish it would have packed a little bit more of a punch. But I'm excited to see where it goes. Okay, so Tamis ending the the resolution of the plot here in the second of our third parts. So he is going after now Nick's loss in the governor's mansion he sneaks in then pretty much the whole city starts to fight each other as all of these 
different forces come together and eventually Nick Sloss's bombs blow up. We, we've known this is going to happen and it does. Nick Sloss gets away. Tamas tries his best to redirect the blast using his powder mage powers. So maybe this is kind of like another nice uh, expansion of powers. I mean, we've seen them do similar things, but um, not maybe on this scale. And he passes out and he wakes up to the king of Delive who has showed up and is very grateful to him for saving the city because his efforts to uh, divert the blast have, for the, for the most part, worked out. And Delive pledges to help them in the war. So this is looking good because, man, Adro really needed some help. Out, out I think they were down to like 3,000 and then they had like 17,000 soldiers or something. Like it, Yeah, it it, it's huge. not looking good. And the Kes yeah. have like an unlimited army. So they really needed this. And then this part ends when they receive word that Adapest is burning, and we kind of we know why that's happening from uh, Adamant's storyline. But Josh, what was your reaction to Tamis's resolution? I enjoyed it. I thought that this was like a very kind of uh, Abercrombie storyline with like him seeing Nexus like dead in the gutter, you know, and not getting that revenge. Like I thought that was like lifted from from. Yeah, that's right. And I misspoke because I said Nick Sloss escaped and he did not. He did not. No, he was dead in the gutter. Implied that he had like fallen and like broken Mm -hmm. his neck when he fell Mm -hmm. and drowned in the puddle. Right. So in typical fantasy, there would be some revenge. The villain would probably try to do something real nefarious and the hero would have no choice but to kill them or, you know, some uh, fate of circumstance would come in to play and, and our hero would be victorious but here in this a little grittier flavor we just have the guy that's been dogging you for so long dead in the gutter and so i thought that was good you you didn't get the catharsis you wanted and i thought that that was good for tamas because it, it it felt like a good progression for the character you know where he had done all of this just to get the satisfaction of seeing of seeing him dead yeah, like you said, it's all a revenge plotline. So you're seeing him dead, but he doesn't get that emotional satisfaction that he was looking for. And so I thought that this was handled really well and ended up being one of my favorite things about the book. So then Adamant's conclusion, we have this mystery of, of what's going on with Lord Claremont, what's going on with this Burdunian trading company that's coming in through the canal. And we're not exactly sure what's going on still. But we do know that Claremont is going to step it up to the next level. He gives this big speech, dramatic speech. He denounces the gods and then he destroys the huge Cressum Cathedral there. And his men start basically, you know, lighting the town on fire and destroying other religious marks. And then he tells Ricard Tumblr that he will also be running for first minister. So there's this chaos. And then there's also this election that's going to happen in the future. So did this, I mean, how well were you able to, to follow this? Because I remember thinking like, what, what, what do we have here? I don't know if this was as clear. And I guess it's more of a, a cliffhanger for third book. This felt like it was just setting up the third book. I was like, okay, this is happening now. Now I yeah. know what the third book is going to be about. I don't think that I can hear about a cathedral getting destroyed without thinking of that awesome moment in Game of Thrones. No spoilers, but you obviously know what I'm talking about, probably my favorite moment from the entire series, I'm going to have to say. Well, At the, least from the TV series. 
Well, there are there are many Game of Thrones comparisons that can be made here, right? Between lining the town with the powder that's going to be blown yeah. up to yeah. the cathedral blowing up. Uh, there are several things that are not lifted from Game of Thrones because it's not like it doesn't like Game of Thrones as a right right to be able to have a permanent hold on these things. I think he does do. I guess maybe to sum up what you're saying, he does a really good job of incorporating a lot of elements from real successful series. I mean, we, I, I compared it to Malazan to death and there's some Game of Thrones things. There's some Sanderson things. There's some Abercrombie things. We hit on all of these things and it ties it up into a real nice series that has its own flavor too. While seeming original, while having enough original aspects of it and while doing enough things well that it seems like that it's a good series in my opinion. You know, the character work is top notch for me. And everything else takes good things or even some of the best things from other authors and from other series and incorporates it really well. Yeah, and I think we were a little critical on some points, but overall, we were, we were pretty generally positive on the second book and on the series. And I think sometimes when you get into these reviews and talk over specific plot points, it's easy to be critical, but I enjoy the Crimson campaign. Yeah, I enjoy it too. And this is an easy... So far, it's an easy series to recommend that, you know, if I'm helping somebody step in, step foot into like the realm of fantasy, this isn't going to be the first thing that I recommend to them, but it's going to be one where like, if they say, oh man, I love Mistborn. What, what else should I read? Like, this is an easy thing to recommend so far for me. Yeah. Dan from the Harry Potter editions of the podcast has read Red Rising and he's finishing Bloodsong right now and he's read uh, Mistborn. So I think this may be the next thing I try to recommend to him. We'll see how it goes. So I, I'm excited to read the third book, Autumn Republic. I'm excited for where this series is heading. I'm happy that it's continuing to do the things that it did well in the first book. It continued to do well in this book. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied with it. It was, a satis- it was a satisfying book to read. So on that note, I think I'm going to call off Worst of the best for this one. I think we have kind of already touched on a few things we were critical on. And I'm going to go ahead and say we're going to wrap up this review of Crimson Campaign. Any final notes, Josh? Nope. I'm excited to keep reading. Um, if you have any suggestions for things that we got wrong, jump on Discord and we'll get those corrections going. I'm not studying out these books, you know? I'm not really reading. I'm reading these just for fun, you know, not to really get super super far into the lore so i we may have made mistakes and if we did then jump on and let us know yeah i guess if i did have to do worst of the best that's probably what i'd say i want more from the lore that's what i've always wanted from the series it's really fascinating uh, anytime you have gods and things going on behind the scenes i i just want to know i want to know what it is that's why i love the cosmere so much because you do get these tiny little hints that slowly you start to realize everything that's going on here that's what i've always wanted from powder mage And that's my worst of the best. I feel like it was there, but not quite enough. But yes, like Josh said, if you like Phantology, check us out. Join our Discord. Check out our website, www.phantologybooks.com. On social media, at Phantology Books. Consider Patreon. Consider merch. Whatever. We'd love to have you on board for Phantology. So this is Crimson Campaign Phantology. Thanks, Josh. See you next time. Thanks, Steve.